They were called dummies. But the deaf community's contribution to baseball was certainly anything but. Learn about the players who helped move baseball forward towards a better game and a more inclusive sport. Today, on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. Thanks for joining me today. We have a great episode to discuss. We are going to look at the deaf community's contributions to professional baseball. Before we get into it, I just want to real quickly plug again, if you haven't signed up for the weekly email newsletter, I would encourage you to do so. There's a link right in the show notes. I'm going to be sending extra resources every week. You can get this episode right in your inbox, and you can see some of the pictures and stories that really expand on the topics that we discuss every week. And then, of course, if you decide from there to support the show a little bit more and you want to give financially, there are premium member benefits that you can sign up for. But I would encourage you to connect with me by signing up for that email newsletter. A link is in the show notes. Now, with that said, let's go ahead and jump into today's topic. We're focusing on the contributions of the deaf community, but at large, we know that players with disabilities have made major contributions to baseball across its history. We've talked about Pete Gray on this show, the gentleman who lost his right arm at age six, went on to have an amazing career with the St. Louis Browns. You can go back to episode 26 if you'd like to hear his story. We have Mordecai Brown, who is a professional player who lost fingers in a farm machinery accident. He went on to be a Hall of Fame pitcher. We have Rube Waddle, another Hall of Fame pitcher. Uh, he was a known alcoholic, but uh, struggled with... Um, uh, mental health issues, and still was able to succeed on the field. We had Jim Abbott, who was born without a right hand. He played in Major League Baseball from 1989 to 1999 and was quite successful. We had Curtis Pride as well, a deaf player who played in Major League Baseball from 1993 until 2006. So the list is certainly long when we discuss individuals that contributed and made baseball better, despite dealing with any physical or mental limitations. And certainly we're going to focus on that today, particularly in discussing the deaf community's contributions to professional baseball. So let's go ahead and get into it. I think you're really going to enjoy this topic. By the year 1901, there were more deaf players on Major League Baseball teams than there have been in the 116 years since that time. Let that sink in for a second. And the first question that comes to mind, at least for me when I started researching this, was why? Why were there so many deaf players that joined baseball during this time? Well, it was an interesting research block that we went through to find this, and the conclusion that we came to was that it wasn't so much that baseball was looking for deaf players to add to their teams. It's that the deaf community itself had really embraced baseball as a path to societal acceptance. Let me explain. In the late 1800s, schools for the deaf across the country started to adopt baseball as their main athletic activity for boys. This was done for several reasons. 
Number one, baseball was quickly becoming the national pastime, a very widely popular played sport, and it was also one that could be easily picked up by younger and older kids alike. And so we saw schools for the deaf go all in on teaching young boys to play the sport, and not only to play it, but to play it well, because it was seen as a way for a individual with hearing issues to be able to support themselves by playing on a minor league or a professional league club and to be able to gain acceptance in society at large. Now, the roots of this movement to include baseball in deaf schools across the country, that really began in the state of Ohio, particularly at the Ohio School for the Deaf. That was the institution that certainly started to not just teach the sport, but to create clubs and playing formally with other clubs in the area. So the Ohio School for the Deaf founded the first residential baseball team of any deaf school in the country. And I do need to backtrack really quickly. There is evidence that deaf baseball players were taking part in the sport, even on the minor league level, in the mid to late 1800s. But it wasn't at a very large extent compared to the late 1800s and early 1900s, like we said, there were more deaf players involved in professional baseball than at any other point in history by 1901. So it really started in the late 1800s, and it started at the school in Ohio, and it spread throughout the country. So we see individuals uh, finishing school from deaf schools and then having this skill to be able to utilize as a way to be able to support themselves. And we have to ask ourselves then these individuals who graduated from deaf schools and were interested in the sport and wanted to continue playing, how did the baseball community accept deaf players? Well, we have to remember the time period. It is the late 1800s, and we know that the United States at large didn't really approach inclusion like we do now. It wasn't really a main current in society. Um, there were social programs that existed to help the uh, disabled in society, as the term would have been used back then. And those social programs were largely not government funded, but were privately funded. So uh, the goal was usually one of two, these private institutions that would try and create these educational or career path opportunities for individuals they deemed as uh, inferior. So we would see schools for the deaf pop up, schools for the blind pop up, schools for individuals with uh, issues with uh, movement of some kind. But it was usually towards two goals. It was either for the goal of entertainment or self-promotion or for religious purposes. And deaf schools in particular began to pop up in the early 1800s. And that really came from the latter. It was a desire from... Christian fundamentalist organizations to save individuals in the deaf, deaf community. So, for instance, there was a quote I found in discussing the importance of deaf schools that said, uh, we found these institutions, quote, to save the souls of the deaf, uh, the deaf uh, quote, by sufficient religious training to understand the word of God. And so there was, you know, just this undercurrent in society that if you weren't an individual with some sort of disability, that it was the job of proper Christians or of institutions who could use you for their own financial benefit to be able to step in 
and help out or to uh, utilize you in a certain way. And that really all stemmed, there were several movements in the late 1800s. Certainly we saw the teaching of evolution take off, and then we see this kind of offshoot of evolution called social Darwinism that became very popular in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I could do a whole history lesson on social Darwinism, which I used to do. But if I had to sum it up, it basically was this this philosophy that taught that the strongest of humanity survive. And if you were born with any sort of weaker genetic traits or disabilities or anything like that, then it would be acceptable for society to graduate to the next level and let individuals like that die off, for lack of a better term. And we saw this from the sterilization of deaf people that occurred you know, earlier on in the U.S. history. Herbert Hoover was a supporter of this. That attitude ran very deep in American society during this time. And we saw individuals from the deaf community usually labeled in public as being mutes or dumb because of that stereotype that, well, deaf people can't talk or use any sort of spoken language, and it was seen as inferior. So deaf players who entered Major League Baseball were often attached with the moniker dummy because it would let the public know that they couldn't hear or talk. And that was from the larger societal trend of referring to deaf people as mutes or dummies. And so that's where the term dummy comes from, because we're going to see that attached to several of the players we're going to talk to today. But in a little bit of baseball's, I guess, defense, the uh, trend of attaching nicknames to players based on uh, a certain commonality was very, very common during this time. So, for instance, if you were a left-handed pitcher, you were nicknamed Lefty. If you were a shorter player, you were called Shorty. So your name would be Shorty last name or Lefty last name. If you were a player from Germany, you were known as Dutch, and you'd be Dutch last name. So we saw this trend carry on into the deaf community as well, where we would have players like Dummy Hoy or Dummy Taylor, which we're going to be talking about. So there was certainly a societal carryover to how people referred to deaf players in pro baseball. But as a whole, deaf players were largely welcomed and embraced by professional baseball clubs during this time period. Teammates were welcoming for the most part. We saw fans supportive for the most part. And so the players who would make it to this large stage, this professional stage, despite any disadvantages, they were viewed by their communities as role models and they inspired young people to also pick up the sport and continue that trend of especially in the deaf community playing baseball and going into the professional ranks of such so who is baseball's first professional deaf player that award actually goes to a gentleman named ed dundon Ed Dundon was from Columbus, Ohio, where we talked about the roots of baseball really taking off in the deaf community. He attended the Ohio Institute for the Deaf. Uh, his hearing loss was genetic. Uh, two of his siblings were also deaf. He graduated from the Institute, and in 1883, he signed a contract to play for the Columbus Buckeyes of the American Association, one of the many professional leagues that existed in the late 1800s, but certainly one of the top ones. Now, he had a really short professional career. He only played two seasons for a pro club. He posted a record of 9-20 and 20 with a 4.25 ERA. 
but he continued to play even after his time in a professional league. He played for three more seasons for minor league teams across the country, and he had his best year in 1887. He posted a 21-11 and record with a 1.3 ERA and 210 strikeouts for an Atlanta minor league club. But Ed's story doesn't end certainly on a happy note. He died really young. He died at 34 years old from consumption, which modern-day term we would call it tuberculosis. So his career was cut short. He also dealt with issues of alcoholism that led to him being kicked off of several teams. But he earns the accolade as being baseball's first professional deaf player. So this was the gentleman that really uh, started the trend. And we saw major league clubs, I shouldn't say major league, professional clubs, start to sign other deaf players because of the talent pool that existed from these individuals graduating from deaf schools and really knowing the sport and being good at it. So we start to see this influx, and then we start to see the emergence of baseball's first deaf stars, individuals who played the game so well that they were known not only as great baseball players, but great baseball players who were deaf as well. And the first, I guess you could say, superstar uh, in pro baseball who was deaf was William Hoy. Let's talk a little bit about William, or Dummy Hoy, like I said, as he was often known as from the time period. Now, William, he ended up losing his ability to hear or speak because of contracting meningitis Excuse me, as a child. So he was not born deaf. It was something that occurred a little bit later on. Uh, after he developed meningitis and ended up losing his hearing and his ability to speak, he went on to attend, yes, you guessed it, the Ohio State School for the Deaf. And this is where he picked up the sport of baseball and became really good at it. So he ended up playing Major League Baseball from 1888 to 1902. Professional clubs, there were many. So 14 years he played for several professional clubs. Those included the Washington Nationals, who were later named the Senators, the Buffalo Bisons, the St. Louis Browns, the Chicago White Sox, the Louisville Colonels, and also the Cincinnati Reds. Now, William was known for several things during his playing time. One of them was that he was an excellent fielder. There was a quote about his ability, you know, in the field where he was referred to someone who could, quote, cover a wide swatch of center field grass, end quote. So he was a, certainly an asset defensively for the clubs he played for. He was also known for his speed. He stole 82 bases in 1888, and he led the National League in that category. And uh, he was just one of those individuals who really normalized deaf players on professional clubs. And it was interesting how he was able to integrate himself in with his teammates. He had a specific way of communicating with his teammates when he was in the field. So this is what he had to say, actually, from his journals. He said, quote, whenever you don't hear me yell, it is understood I am not after the ball and they govern themselves accordingly, end quote. So William had a way of, again, recapping, telling his teammates that if I don't yell, that means I'm not going for the ball. So he would make an audible sound, and his teammates got used to that being the signal that he was going to go for the ball if he made that sound. Now, going back to William's accomplishments during his time playing professional baseball, he has several records that he holds. Number one, he was the first individual to hit a grand slam in American League history. 
He also set an MLB record by throwing out three runners at home in one game. Like I said, excellent defensive player. That record's been tied twice by other individuals, but he was the original who set the record. His career batting average over his entire playing career was 288. Impressive. Like I said, he was fast. He stole 596 bases overall throughout his entire 14-year career. He's 19th all-time in that category. He scored 1,429 runs. That's good enough for 85th all-time on the lists. He played until he was 41 years old, and he played in one season, 212 games for the Los Angeles Angels, this is when they were a part of an independent minor league club call uh, in the Pacific Coast League. He did that in 1903, 212 games at the age of 41. It's crazy. He's also only one of 29 players in baseball history to have played in four different professional baseball leagues. He recorded 1,006 career walks. That puts him second in MLB history behind Billy Hamilton. And he also ended his career ranking eighth in career games played with 1,796. Obviously, that's been eclipsed since that time. But when he played, he ranked eighth on the list for his generation. So he had an illustrious playing career, certainly achieved every accolade that a player could during this time, was an asset to his clubs, was a well-known name in professional baseball. And uh, the United States Deaf Sports Federation really pushed for William to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And by the list of stats I gave you, it should be apparent that he certainly warranted consideration. But uh, in each of the three times that he was put on the ballot, he ended up falling short and was not ever inducted into Cooperstown. It's a sad ending for a guy who certainly accomplished a lot during his career. But William always had a great attitude about it. He appreciated the impact he had on the game, especially influencing other deaf players to continue playing the sport. Uh, he lived until 1961. He died five months short of his 100th birthday, and he was the oldest living MLB player at the time. So William certainly had a large impact on baseball during his time on the field and also pushing for more inclusion and encouraging more deaf players to take up the sport. So that's our first individual from the deaf community that impacted baseball in a large way. The second individual I want to talk about who was considered a star during his time, who was also deaf, was a gentleman named Luther Taylor. Let's talk about Luther. Luther, it's unclear if he was born deaf. We don't know because the census data doesn't list him as deaf when it was recorded when he was four years old. So uh, normally, if, if you were deaf, you would be marked as such on the census, but he was not when he was four. But we do know that by age 10, he enrolled in the Kansas School for the Deaf. So something happened between age four and age 10. Maybe something happened by birth and there was a recording error. It's unclear. But we do know by age 10, he is enrolled in a school for the deaf. This is where he learned baseball. He picked it up here. He was an excellent athlete, took to it immediately. He was not only an excellent athlete, he was an excellent student as well. He graduated as valedictorian of his class. After his time at the Kansas School for the Deaf, he ended up playing some semi-pro ball. He played for several minor league teams. And by the age of 25, he had built up enough of a reputation where a professional club decided to sign him. And he was signed by none other than the New York Giants. 
He played with them for eight years and left a uh, marked impact on their success. Let me talk about how. He was a pitcher. He won 116 games over those nine seasons that he played. And he was a really big part of the New York Giants' impressive rotation in those early 20th century years. He was the guy that played with Christy Mathewson on the New York Giants and Joe McGinty. He was that third star next to those two who played for these clubs. Uh, Taylor had his best year in 1904. He went 21-15. and 15. He posted a 2.34 ERA, and he pitched 296 innings. And that was the same year that the Giants went on to win the National League pennant. Yeah. And I guess as an interesting tidbit to throw in there, 1904 was the year that the Giants refused to play Boston for the 1904 World Series. So we didn't see a meeting of uh, the two leagues during that year. But uh, nevertheless, Taylor had a uh, indelible impact on the Giants and their success. And he really became, again, an integral part of the club to the point where several of his teammates ended up learning sign language to better support him and be able to communicate more effectively on and off the field. So we see his influence in the clubhouse. Outside of the clubhouse, he was reported to be the highest paid deaf person in the United States during his time with the Giants. And, you know, it's funny, too, because we we look at Luther Taylor. He was a bit of a comedian of sorts, too. So there's some funny stories about during his playing career that I wanted to share with you. So there's a story that uh, there was one baseball game where Taylor ended up disagreeing with the decision by the umpire in that game to not call the game because darkness was was ascending on the game. It was nighttime and it was getting hard to see the ball. And of course, this is before we had the benefit of stadium lighting. So to protest this decision by the umpire, Luther went into the clubhouse and he came back onto the field wearing a fireman's suit and holding a lantern above his head. And the umpire got upset at him and yelled for him to get off the field. But Taylor kept pointing, so I can't hear you. <laughs> and he continued with these antics, walking around with his lantern and pretending you know, he couldn't hear the umpire until the umpire finally did call the game. So his antics worked. It was certainly something the spectators enjoyed. There was another... Uh, incident that kind of shows his sense of humor that was written down by the great Honus Wagner. He wrote about a game in which the Giants were complaining about an umpire's refusal to suspend a game because it had started raining. So again, Honus Wagner wrote in his journals that, quote, this is what he had to say what Dummy did after the umpire refused to call the game because of rain. Quote, so Dummy Taylor, one of the Giant pitchers, went out to third base, coaching lines in his hip boots and raincoat. Then the umpire got mad. He chased Taylor out of the park, and it was funny to see Dummy trying to explain to him that he shouldn't be ejected. So we know that uh, Luther later recalled that same individual, that same umpire, and he said that that umpire, quote, not only chased me, but declared the game forfeited to the other club, end quote. He was so upset at Taylor for those antics after uh, having that disagreement. So... Uh, Luther Taylor, certainly known for not only his on-field exploits, but also for being, you know, kind of an off-field influence in a positive way for the New York Giants. There's a great story that kind of ties together both of these individuals, William and Luther. They actually faced each other in a game 
on May 16, 1902. It was a game between the Cincinnati Reds and they were facing the New York Giants. So you have William Hoy on the Reds, you have Luther Taylor on the Giants. This is the only time in history that a deaf pitcher faced a deaf batter. So William Hoy's team was up to bat. He entered the batter's box and he signaled to Taylor in sign language, quote, I'm glad to see you. Isn't that a great moment? So we have these two individuals, these two household names advancing the sport for the deaf community, and they have a moment between each other when they're facing one another between their two clubs. So overall, Luther Taylor, throughout his career, he played until 1908. He uh, ended up not continuing with the Giants as he got older, but he continued to play baseball. He played for several minor league clubs until 1915. And even after he retired from baseball, he went on to umpire and he went back to the Illinois School for the Deaf. Well, I shouldn't say went back because he, he went to Kansas, excuse me. But he ended up working at the Illinois School for the Deaf to mentor future players there as well. And he really, you know, in his interviews, in his journals, he really points towards his most important contribution not being what he did on the field, but the fact that he became a role model and a hero in the deaf community. And wherever he went, wherever the Giants went, there was this fascination with this individual. And other people in the deaf community really supported what he was doing because of the, uh, the light he was bringing you know, about what deaf players could accomplish in Major League Baseball and as equal members of society. There was a, an article in the Saturday Evening Post that was talking about this um, that stated, quote, wherever Taylor goes, he will always be visited by scores of the silent fraternity among whom he is regarded as a prodigy, end quote. So we see Luther Taylor's impact certainly uh, expand in the deaf community and outside the deaf community. And he really not only helped normalize deaf players in baseball, but he also was able to get society at large to think about the terms that they were using for individuals in the deaf community. He helped push back against those negative stereotypes, such as the usage of the term dummy tied to professional sports players and entertainers. There was a, an article that was written uh, for the publication The Silent Worker, and they were discussing this. And he said about Luther Taylor, quote, the highest salary deaf man in the United States is the much heralded dummy Taylor. I say dummy only to serve to show how contemptible the epithet looks, end quote. So we see Luther Taylor's influence really tie into just this overall push for more inclusion and acceptance of the deaf community and individuals at large uh, in society for being treated as equals. So those are the first two individuals we see from the deaf community really reach star status in professional baseball. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to discuss with you the legacy of uh, deaf players and their contributions to baseball at large, and then some modern-day examples of deaf players who have also contributed to baseball. So stay with me. We will be right back. If you have a business, you really need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running, though? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. 
Pear makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag-and-drop page design. And they have guaranteed U.S.-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pear Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pear.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pear.com slash free. Promo code QUICKSTART to get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our episode Thank you for sticking with me. We have been discussing the contributions of the deaf community to baseball. We started off by talking about why there was an influx of deaf players in baseball in the early 1900s. We talked about baseball's first deaf player to play for a professional team. We talked about um, baseball's first stars from the deaf community. What we're going to focus on in the second half of our show is we're going to talk about the deaf community's legacy on improving baseball as a whole. And we're going to start with the uh, very common talking point that deaf players are responsible for the adoption of hand signals in Major League Baseball or in professional baseball. And we see this uh, attitude, especially by modern fans, and this has been a a little bit of uh, an issue with accurate reporting from modern publications. There's this belief that William Hoy, who we had talked about, uh, was the reason, was the guy who brought about the usage of certain hand signals, such as outfielders waving off other fielders when they're coming in to catch a fly ball. We know that this is not correct because we know from William Hoy's own words that he would use an audible signal to call off his teammates if he was going for the ball. Remember, I had discussed this. His own teammate, Tommy Leach, uh, his roommate and teammate from when William Hoy was playing in professional ball, he said that Hoy would call his teammates with a little squeaky sound, end quote, that he would make. And we know from William's own writings, like I said, that that's how he would communicate, that he was going for the ball. So... It is incorrect to say that William Hoy used hand signals to call off other teammates when he was going for a ball. We know this. But we also know that hand signals were not used predominantly during the late 1800s and early 1900s. Umpires would usually just give signs verbally when they announce calls. And so there developed this uh, common tie-in that William Hoy would go to the umpires and request that they use hand signals to be able to communicate if they were balls or strikes. Uh, And this is why we started using hand signals in baseball. Well, most baseball historians agree that umpire signals began a few years actually after William Hoy retired and that it was implemented for the fans' benefit, not from the request of deaf players to be able to see whether or not it was a ball or a strike. So most historians think that the use of hand signals didn't start with deaf players, that it actually started with umpires from the time period. Bill Clem is often named as an individual who started using them. And then another umpire named Cy Rigler in 1905. They've been credited officially by most historians as being the gentleman who brought hand signals to baseball, not William Hoy and the deaf community. But, but... 
there is a very strong belief amongst the deaf community that William Hoy and the deaf community at large, other deaf professional players, were the influence behind the adoption of hand signals. Why these umpires decided to start using hand signals. Let me give you some reasons for that. We know that William Hoy relied when he was at the plate on knowing whether a pitch was a ball or a strike by the third base coach. The third base coach, he would look down after every pitch, and the third base coach would raise his left hand if it was a ball and his right hand for strikes. So there we see the usage of hand signals when a player is at the plate. William Hoy did this every game. We know that other deaf players used certain types of hand signals with their teammates and with their coaches to be able to communicate properly on the field. This happened for decades. We even know that Ed Dundon, who was a deaf pitcher who played professional baseball in 1883 and 1884, he went on to start umpiring minor league games. And at a particular game in 1886, it was recorded that he used hand signals to communicate his decisions because he couldn't say them audibly, which was the norm. So here we have a deaf umpire using hand signals. We also have R.A.R. Edwards, who is the author of the book Deaf Players in Major League Baseball, A History, 1883 to the Present. He weighed in on this debate, too. And this gentleman is a professor at the Rochester Institute in New York. He teaches classes with a large deaf population and often discusses baseball with them. He believes specifically that the deaf community is correct in their defense that individuals such as William Hoy, Luther Taylor, and other deaf baseball players were the ones that popularized hand signals and are responsible for their adoption. This is what he had to say about it. Quote, I trust the deaf community on this one. They have been passing down this story for more than 100 years. And the consistency of that oral tradition across generations of deaf fans counts for quite a lot. End quote. So while we do have right now a majority of baseball historians saying that hand signals occurred a little bit after some of the major deaf players ended up retiring and that it was independent of deaf players bringing this to the league. I would say, I think that there is room for debate here because even if certain umpires in the early 1900s are credited with its adoption, where did they get the idea from? And if it was widely used amongst this large influx of deaf players across professional leagues, certainly the usage of it would have increased and had led, would have led, excuse me, to the adoption of using hand signals. It's a topic worth debating. I'm going to include some articles that uh, debate this topic a little bit more in our weekly newsletter. So if you haven't signed up, you can go to the link in the show notes and subscribe. Remember, it's free to start. If you want to be a premium member, that's always an option, but certainly you can subscribe to the free version. I would love to hear back from you about what you think, who was responsible for the uh, adoption of hand signals in professional baseball. But we know that the deaf community uh, for a large part did use hand signals, and we know that there's an influence there, an undeniable influence. So we will leave that there and certainly hopefully continue the discussion outside of this episode. So that's one of the major contributions that we can link from the deaf community to baseball's growth and development. But we also see other individuals later on in history who continued playing baseball and making a positive impact on the sport who were also deaf. 
Let me give you some examples. We have Dick Sipek. Dick was actually an individual who was mentored by Luther Taylor at the Illinois School for the Deaf. He was an outfielder who got signed by the Cincinnati Reds in 1945. He played in 82 games, and he did rather well. He continued playing after that season in the minors for another two years. So he played one year in the big leagues, two more in the minor leagues, and really, again, continued pushing that deaf players could not only play professional baseball, but could play it very well. And after his playing days, just as Luther Taylor did, he gave back to his community. He worked at schools for children with disabilities, and he continued to really influence the lives of thousands of young people who wanted to play sports. He had a great quote before he passed away that I wanted to include. Uh, He said, quote, I was motivated and I showed them the deaf can do it. No matter if I can't hear or I'm hard of hearing, it doesn't make any difference. I can do it, end quote. So we have Dick Sipek, a uh, more modern example of a deaf player in professional baseball. And that leads us to Curtis Pride. Curtis Pride, certainly an individual, the most recent example we have of someone playing professional baseball from the deaf community. Curtis was diagnosed at nine months old uh, that he was born deaf because his mother contracted rubella during his pregnancy. So for the first nine months, he wasn't labeled as deaf, but at nine months old, he was as such. His parents wanted him to be able to fit into society at large, so they taught him at a very young age to read lips as well as learn sign language. They wanted him to learn both. And he went on to actually have a very successful baseball career early on. So he was a student. He was uh, at William & Mary University during his college years. He played basketball and baseball. He ended up starting for both teams. After he graduated, he started playing minor league baseball. Now, he got his big break in 1986 when he made his first MLB appearance, and he ended up playing uh, on several professional clubs between 1986 and 2007. Uh, His last MLB appearance was in 2006 with the Los Angeles Angeles Angels. So for 20 seasons, he played for 10 different organizations, and he actually finished his playing days playing in the Independent Atlantic League with the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs. So he certainly was a valuable player for several clubs during his time. After his playing days, he was a huge advocate for not only the deaf community, but communities at large who wanted to participate in sports uh, where opportunities may not have been there before. He and his wife, Lisa, started the Together with Pride Foundation, and that was specifically to benefit hearing-impaired children. And in 2009, he actually continued his career in sports, and he was named the head coach for Gallaudet University. That's the country's only liberal arts college for the deaf, and he leads their baseball program there. Pride was named to President Barack Obama's Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition in 2010. He has certainly done a lot of work to uh, advance inclusion in not only Major League Baseball, but in sports and society at large. In 2016, he was actually named the MLB's Ambassador for Inclusion. And he took over for Billy Bean in that regard, who was promoted to vice president for responsibility and inclusion. 
And that really leads us to our final thought. So we see Dick Sipek and Curtis Pride continuing this legacy of individuals from the deaf community, really promoting inclusion. And baseball has done a good job, I think, especially in recent years, of trying to encourage inclusion for everybody who wants to get involved in the sport. Just to give you an example, small things that the MLB did. In 2019, they renamed their roster designation for players who were recovering from an injury. We all know classically it was called the disabled list or the DL. Um, that was changed by Major League Baseball to IL, the injured list, instead of the disabled list. And this wasn't just on the Major League Baseball level. This was also for the minor leagues as well. We saw Jeff Pfeiffer, who was the MLB's senior director of league economics. He talked about why this change was made. He said, quote, the principal concern is that using the term disabled for players who are injured supports the misconception that people with disabilities are injured and therefore not able to participate or compete in sports, end quote. And this was widely accepted by several organizations across the country representing uh, individuals with physical limitations. We saw Jay Ruderman, who is the president of the Ruderman Family Foundation, which is a nonprofit uh, for advocates for disability rights. He said just this small change uh, that the MLB made in 2019. He said, quote, I think it's a huge step for the disability community. And it looks at the fact that being disabled is part of the human condition and disabled people deserve to have their human rights recognized like any other minority group. And baseball got it, end quote. So just that small change, I think, represents baseball's attempt to try and be seen as a more inclusive sport that is open to individuals who want to play. And we see the MLB continuing to really prioritize diversity and inclusion. They've made uh, several programs, started several programs in this regard. They have a program for workforce diversity. They have a program for diverse business partners. They have a... Uh, hosting events throughout the country uh, related to several organizations in this area. They hold events like the Take the Field Initiative, and that's designed for women to hold careers in baseball. They have a one-day event called The Bridge, which is uh, meant to bridge the gap between baseball and culture. So baseball is, I think, actively trying to encouraging expanding the sport to everybody, regardless of personal characteristics or limitations. And I think that's a good thing. Because if you can play baseball, you should be able to play baseball. And if you love baseball, there's a spot for you to help it grow. And this is one of the few areas that I think baseball is doing it right and having an eye on the future. There's so many things we can talk about where baseball seems to be stuck in this quicksand pit of not knowing how to reach the next generation. And as someone who's been involved in education for a very long time, I can tell you baseball is going to face its challenges in popularity with the current and future generations. And there has to be some changes. There has to be some progressions. I'm not saying a full revolutionary change of the sport, but the MLB certainly, even with this lockout going on right now, really needs to think about how they can reach future generations and continue growing the sport. This is one way I think they're doing it right. So to close, folks, I would say thank you to members of the deaf community for your love of the sport and for continuing to make baseball a sport that is open to all. Folks, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. I appreciate the support. Remember in the show notes, if you want to sign up for the newsletter, it's there along with some other links that you may enjoy and other ways you can support the show. But until next time, 
Remember how we always end the show with that famous quote? Remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>